Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a bite-sized related work podcast where we pick up on a single idea from literature and experience that may provide some insights or tips that will help us change academic life for the better. In managing your own academic working life, how do you go about recognising and rewarding yourself or uh, judging the, how productive you are in your work and seeing progress? The focus of this short podcast is mainly to replay a snippet from a conversation that I had, podcast conversation I had quite a while ago with Catherine Isbister, who talks really well about the way in which she's managing her work life so that she can work eight to five, Monday to Friday, and in particular, reflecting on her own productivity and praising herself. And I chose this snippet to replay on the basis of two particular encounters this week. One was a meeting where one of the people in the meeting was talking about really struggling with some writing they were doing. They were, they were struggling to find the story across a number of studies that they had done to pull and how to pull it together. And in that struggle, they were also struggling to see any reward or great progress as they talked about it. They also felt that um, others were judging them as not being very good because they were having this struggle. And those others being people who might have given them some constructive feedback on the writing as input. And so they thought they weren't very good. But I, you know, I can assure you that this is not the case. In fact, this person is really amazing as a researcher. But nonetheless, what we can see here are some of the sort of feelings of being an imposter, uh, not progressing. And we also recognize an, a negativity bias, which psychology literature talk, will you know, talk to us about being a, a natural tendency that we have that does have some protective properties and, and has an evolutionary basis. I want to draw particular attention to a 2019 nature paper by Miller Pinsler et al. called Negativity Bias Informing Beliefs About Own Abilities. And they talk about negativity bias specific for learning um, com, you know, about our own compared to others' performances and that being modulated by prior beliefs about ourselves, and that there's a stronger negativity bias in people with who are lower in self-esteem and that social anxiety can affect self-related negativity bias when individuals are exposed to a judging audience. And in academia, we definitely have a judging audience, don't we, in reviewers and uh, supervisors and so on. Or so it might feel. And so this triggered a conversation in the meeting with, with the others who are present about what were people's strategies for trying to, what did progress mean and how did they recognise progress and how did they handle the ups and downs of writing. And there was one other person in the meeting in particular who really impressed me in how they talked about having also struggled with these issues but realising that they needed to do something different and, and taking on a very deliberate strategy of trying to spend time focusing on what they had done, what they had achieved, and also just how lucky they were or how lucky they felt that they were able to do research 
on a topic that they were really passionate about and to have this time to struggle with writing. Even though it was a struggle and they were having, you know, having to do multiple iterations to develop the research story across their data as well. And the second uh, encounter this week was just coming across a couple of particular research studies. One was um, of UK university staff uh, that was reported in, that I saw in Times Higher Education, but reflecting a preprint article by Dougal et al. from 2021 about mental health and well-being and people having higher levels of anxiety, one and a half times the national average, especially during this pandemic. Uh, there was an also a conversations article about Australian and New Zealand academics that also similarly reported them being very stressed. Uh, and I also happened to come across a Harvard Business Review article that talked about the research is clear, long hours backfire for people and for companies. So it's not particularly about ap academia, but it does show clear research about long working long hours being counterproductive and and uh, we're not as creative and we're not our outputs aren't as good. And also just the whole uh, health and well-being uh, impacts. And we know that we see similar articles reported on academic context. And I think a lot of what the you know that person reported in the meeting you know was leading to stress, and that stress was related to performance pressures and the general stress of academe. So I thought it was really timely to revisit this podcast chat with Catherine. And I want to replay from about thirty four minutes fifty five seconds into the original uh, conversation with her. And I would encourage you to listen to the rest as well if you haven't already, as, as there's really great stuff there that she shares. And I think Catherine's chat connects to both these themes. She uh, very deliberately manages a productive working life, very productive working life, and she does it between the hours of 8 to 5 and Monday to Friday because of what she considers is important to her, and that's time with family and friends outside of work as well. She also talks about some of the strategies that she's put in place towards this, about taking time to stop and recognise what she has achieved, like reflecting on your own productivity and praising yourself. So have a listen here. Well, I mean, one thing is I, I don't work weekends and I try not to work late nights. I mean, I, I set pretty strict boundaries mm -hmm. on family time mm -hmm. and also in the summer. Um, so practically, what does that mean, setting strict boundaries? Well, it means that I, I learned, once Nona was born, I learned to uh, work within a sort of like eight to five weekdays boundary. Mm -hmm. I mean, the downside of that is I don't do a lot of water cooler chat. Mm -hmm. So I think it can affect your networking you know, within your institution, but I was sort of willing to make that trade-off to get the work done during the hours and then be there in the evenings and weekends. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really helped. And then I think um, my husband's German, so we've always gone to Germany for part of the summer. So my daughter's always been traversing contacts mm -hmm. and seeing that as a part of life. Now, now that we're settled in Santa Cruz, she's nine now. I, I would not leave 
you know, until she is done with high school, mm -hmm. right? So, so this I think is a new phase in your life. Exactly. Yes. Be you, you because deal with politics if they. Happen. I will. I will. I can. I can do it now. I can be zen about it. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, I think kids when they're younger, there is a lot of shuffling people do, but yeah. I think at a certain point, yeah. it's pretty important. So I wouldn't do that to her now. So it sounds like the. It, being very disciplined about working eight to five. If I, if I can just reinterpret that, it's about being very disciplined about how you spend every minute of that day. Because you, you said about not yes. having so much time for the water cooler chats, which yes. points to the fact that we might be, some of us might be at work for 12 hours or something, but you know, how much of that time is actually productive or what do we define as productive as in, and important and how do we prioritise water cooler versus whatever other activity we need to do. Well, and I think, too, I wouldn't be surprised if there was more drift now that I'm at Santa Cruz because, yeah. as I was saying about NYU, I didn't have colleagues where I'd have these productive cross-fertilization yeah. co co conversations. Um, but at Santa Cruz, that's much more likely. So I think when it's causing that to happen, it's really mm. great to have mm. water cooler conversations, whereas the kind that aren't so productive are the sort of chewing on politics or I mean also you know if you form friendships at work and mm -hmm. that's great that's yeah. not a problem right yeah. I think for me though I just realized I have all of this family and extended friend and family yeah. network that I need yeah. to preserve um, so the way I do it is I figure out when is my best hours for writing and, and when then is that? in the morning yeah and usually the very best time is right after a vacation or a weekend like that first slot is when I can think of almost anything yeah. really creative. So I know that and I block that time. Then everything else comes in the other time, right? And I know that Friday afternoons are crap and they're not good for much mm -hmm. of anything. You know, mm -hmm. so you yeah. just get realistic about. Yeah. And do you do things like plan the night before what you're going to do the next day so that you are productive and disciplined or do you just know it? Oh, yeah. I have, a, I have like... Uh, I set up the whole week. I have a little journal and I set up the whole week of what I'm going to do all week. And then I have every Friday I do a week in review. So I look at what actually I did get done and I didn't. And then I kind of troubleshoot based on that because otherwise weeks can go by and I have no sense of, and then lately I've, I've been like kind of categorizing those things because when I was associate professor at NYU, I got way too caught up in service duties mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I thought I had to solve all these things. And so lately I tag things as research intensive things. And I ha that has to be the majority of what I do every week. And if I start to drift off of that, then I, I just back off. So you have service. a strong sense of what the balance of the components of your work is. Mm -hmm. And I really like this sort of Friday review back on the week and troubleshooting. Yeah, and then I make I sure to, that. I actually like write my own assessment every week. <laughs> I sound so compulsive, but, and I like make a point of praising myself if I did a good job. Cause the Go other thing, you. cause I used to always beat myself up. I'd be like, yeah, sure, you did those five things. But what about the other three things? And then you don't want to work anymore. Cause Go you, on you. that's you know. so important to do. <laughs> It is because one of the challenges in academia is we can always be doing more things. Yes. Yeah. And nobody sits you down and says, okay, that was enough, Geraldine. Yeah. You did good. Go yeah. home and take yeah. a break. And so I think I do that to myself. I say, yep, you did a good job this week. You get to take the weekend off. And it's, 
it's really nice. It feels like liberating. Mm. Yeah. So that sounds like a nice closure to the week as well that really enables you to step into the weekend, yes. leaving that behind. And that's why at that same time I try to plan the next week yeah. so that I've, I've queued it all up, I know what's coming. Because yeah. the other thing I think it does is it drops the things into my subconscious on yes. that Friday afternoon that need to be percolating for Monday mm. so that I'm ready, mm. you know. But not in the subconscious in the way of, oh, I can't forget to do that because it's written down in the list. Exactly. It's that sort of positive percolating rather than the stressing. Yes. About, you know, yeah. That's the goal anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds really amazing. Um, there was something that we... Had, that you had said yesterday when we were just talking informally about you know when you were working eight to five, sometimes feeling guilty about telling people that. Can you just say a little bit around that? Sure. Like I, I think I don't know how it is in Europe, but in the U.S., there's this culture around. Uh, oh, I worked more than you worked. And oh no, I of, worked even more. Than exactly. That. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm working yeah. sixty-hour weeks, yeah. and and I. I actually did tell someone one time, I remember one time saying, oh, I'm only working this amount, and they got kind of upset with me. And I realized, okay, revealing that you actually have work-life balance, uh, it, well, it makes people angry if they don't, and they're working overworking themselves. It kind of makes them question the narrative. And um, it also sort of uh, makes people feel bad sometimes because mm. they think, well, why am I overworking and that person's not, right? So instead of it becoming a discussion about a better model for working, I think it can sometimes become uh, this like implicit critique of someone else's practice. And also the other side of it when I was more junior was uh, I was scared that mm. people would think I wasn't to be taken seriously yeah. being a woman. Yeah. And then once I had a child, it's like, oh, no, she's gone out to pasture. She's not going to do anything. But you know? you've clearly been able to negotiate a way of working that's very productive, very effective, where you're sought after, you're in a great position now, and you're a great role model for showing that it can work. Yes, I, I think everyone should have work-life balance. Yeah. I, I just... I think most of the research on when you're really like on your deathbed and they yeah, ask people, yeah. you know, they don't say, I wish I had been on one more service yeah. committee for a conference. I wish I'd worked one more Sunday. <laughs> like, but it's always you know. challenging to keep that perspective in mind in the minutiae of, you know, the day-to-day -day challenges. And I think that's a good reason to reflect on your productivity and praise yourself. Yeah. Because I think one thing about academia is you don't get instant positive feedback from yeah. someone else like in a design job when I used to work in design you had a manager who would review your work and say yes wow you yeah. know you did good and they had a good overview of how productive you were compared to others but we just don't have that in academe so you, mm. you kind of we can start it we can start being um, more conscious of praising people and saying to people You've, that's good enough or that's enough yes yeah you could do more but at what cost? What exactly. No, I think, I, and I really like, I like this podcast because I think also people exposing and talking about mm. these like pressures and tensions mm. as they move through the practice of their yeah. work is another way to, to notice and to say to yourself, oh, okay, it's not just me. Yeah. It's other people have yeah. these issues. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that great? And in terms of this being a related work podcast, I just want to make some links to what Catherine has said and what, what research says as well. 
So in the last part of, of that conversation, Catherine talks about that, you know, we're not the only ones who experience this. And this reminds me of the research on self-compassion, especially by leading psychology researchers in self-compassion, Christian, Kristen Neff from University of Texas and Chris Gamma from Harvard Medical School and the Center for Mindfulness and Compassion at the Cambridge Health Alliance. And they talk about self-compassion as having three particular components. One is taking an attitude of self-acceptance rather than self-judgment. And that means accepting reality, um, just accepting that you know, we do suffer or fail or feel inadequate and not, not uh, either not ignoring that we feel like that nor, nor beating ourselves up with self-criticism for uh, not succeeding. And I think that's really important. So we, we just embrace the reality of, yes, yeah, sometimes things aren't working out or sometimes things are hard and it's a struggle. The second element of this approach to self-compassion is recognizing that we share a common humanity rather than it just being something that just happens to me. And in this case, we can talk about you know, recognizing that this is part of the shared academic experience. Writing is hard. We all struggle in particular ways. It's something that we all go through, more or less, of course. But it's, it's a shared experience. It's not because you're bad in some way. And the third component they talk about is taking a more mindful approach rather than over-identifying with the negative. And so we can see that the, the negativity bias would, would push us into a, an over-identification. That's all we focus on, that you know, feeling like we haven't done well, feeling like we're struggling to find the story. And we can really um, exaggerate those feelings as well by focusing on them. Another approach that they, they identify as not being helpful is either suppressing them. So the point is about not getting caught up and swept away by negative reactivity and instead just taking a stance that's much more about recognising that those negative thoughts and emotions are there and just sitting with them, holding them. And what some of their more, Kristen's more recent work um, around fear self-compassion would add another question about what do I need to do right now on the basis of this? So that, that steps into some sort of care approach. What do I need? How do I, how do I care for this situation? And we can see the approach of stopping and deliberately thinking about, well, what progress have I made? What is working? Um, what do I want to praise myself for? As being a particular strategy, that might just be what you need right now, especially to balance some of the, some of the negativity. And again, this connects to a lot of research that's been done on the concept in psychology, in the, on the concept of savoring and uh, particularly driven by people like Bryant and Veroff. And they define savoring as attending, appreciating and enhancing the positive experiences that occur in one's life. And, and they also talk about it being a very active pro, uh, process. And of course, all the research around this talks about, you know, people who take the time to do this savoring, just paying attention, stopping and paying attention to what's going well. Um, you know, have higher levels of subjective well-being on all sorts of measures. So 
in summary, I think these are some of the lessons from what Catherine has said. I think first is the the way that she manages her eight to five work. And what that reflects is a really deliberate process of deciding on her part what's important to her and making choices in how she works that honours all those areas. And in other parts of the podcast conversation, she talks about that a bit more. It also talks about taking more proactive, protective strategies to counter the negativity that we experience. And this involves the steps of stopping, reviewing and reflecting where we're at, accepting how we're feeling and that it's okay and that it's a common shared experience, and then deliberately looking for what do we need now. And that might be, you know, what is progress that we can see? What is good? And just giving it some attention, paying attention to it, savor it, feel it, enhance it, praise yourself, enjoy it. Now, a couple of, a caveat is I'm not saying that this is the whole solution to all of the pressures and stresses of academia and the and all of the managerial culture and performance pressures and so on and um, we we do need systemic changes around our performance and rewards structures and much more as we've discussed in previous podcasts some just recently but i think it's an and situation we do need to think about how we can get those structural changes systemic changes and there's what we can do right now that's within our control. It's also not a naive positivity bias, like let's ignore the negative and just be Pollyanna. Um, it's about just making more deliberate choices in what we do, more deliberate choices in how we think, and recognising that sometimes a, a total negativity bias doesn't serve us well and that we may need to put more effort into looking at how do we identify progress and praising ourselves and what we can do for one another as well, especially where the research talks about people struggling with self-esteem, you know, perhaps having uh, dealing with the negativity bias even more. If we recognise that particularly in our colleagues, work with one another, help one another to see what's going well to name it and to praise it and to spend some time celebrating so we can proactively and collaboratively help draw out what what is progress and and what's good and to give it some time just to savour it and uh, enjoy the value of what we're doing, still recognising the work that we need to do. So I hope that raises just some food for thought. And as I said, I'd encourage you to listen to Catherine's, the full conversation with Catherine. And I will put all the links to these various papers and articles on the webpage if you wanted to follow up with anything. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change ACAD Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.